Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I am one of the co-founders here at ETR. I am the father of Jerry, the most beautiful beast in the world. And today we are joined by the man of no roses, the king of the tournament streets these days, the man known as Dink Peace. It is Drew Dinkmeyer. Drew, how's it going? Uh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm here for a completely different reason than I'm normally here for. We're talking season-long fantasy football. That's usually not my gig, but I'm, I'm here. There's a big tournament, so I'm ready to attack it. Exactly. Very, very big tournament. We'll get to that in a second. Drew is set to embark on the NBA journey starting Thursday of this week, into which he will go into a hole and not emerge for three months. Reminder that Drew, Mike Gallagher, Andrew Wiggins, Leone, our NBA Dream Team have launched our new NBA product. There's already content up. Everything you need to play DFS during the restart action. I mean, we talked about it on the salary release show. Action, I think, is just going to be absolutely off the wall. So if you guys are interested in playing NBA DFS, really think you'd benefit from checking it out. Again, if you're going to be in the NBA streets. But today, Today, Drew, we are not talking NBA DFS. No, we are talking another form of peer-to-peer fantasy sports, this time NFL best ball. And I actually do think that our edge in best ball can be fairly large, um, kind of in a similar way to NBA NBA DFS can be for those who are working hard and are good. But, But of course, you have to tie up money for a really long time. You can't play as high volume as DFS. But I still think that like the edge and the value is there in best ball. What do you think just in general about what kind of edge we can have over our opponents in this kind of format, Drew? Yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of similar long, similar to season-long prop betting, right? Or like futures bets where you might see some opportunity on the market, but you're certainly going to have to tie that money up for quite some time. And with best ball in general, I think there's a couple different leverage points that you can lean on to really create advantages over your opponents. One of the big ones, I think, is just positional roster allocation. I think a lot of people go into these best ball drafts that are just doing them for fun and they don't really have an idea of the correct way to construct a roster uh, from the allocation standpoint. And as a result, they end up with rosters that really aren't meant for the format that they're trying to play. They're either over allocating funds at a position or they leave themselves short at kind of another position and they end up with really choppy rosters that aren't able to kind of sustain themselves throughout course of the contest and so I think there's lots of ways you can leverage your your advantage there and then I think you know other more simplistic concepts that just aren't used as heavily as they should be like stacking um, are things that you can certainly do to increase your upside on on basketball and and the whole thing about basketball is your whole roster is available to score points for you on a given week you're just going to take the best scores so being able to create that correlation and upside in your lineups does end up adding a little bit of expected value over the course of the full season. One other thing I'd say about best ball that I think is cool is I think people use it as like um, mock drafts, like so yeah. they're getting ready for their home league and they're like, well, I want some practice drafts. These free mock drafts that you find on sites are just a disaster. I mean, nobody shows up, nobody's drafting seriously. But in these, even if you play for a dollar or two dollar or five dollars or ten dollars or, or whatever, it's a pretty good uh, example of what a draft might go like. So I think, you know, for season long people out there who just want to take a shot uh and do some mocks for a little bit of money i think makes a lot of sense um okay some people might not know what we're talking about drew i want to quickly explain what best ball is uh it is a draft only format literally draft only draft your team there are no trades there are no waivers there's no setting your lineup as drew mentioned the computer sets it for you with your optimal lineup for each week you literally play a season out with no managing it whatsoever we see who wins Uh, it's actually i I think amazing and you know everyone loves to draft i love to draft but at least for me i don't want to manage a season-long team while i'm grinding dfs so hard i know drew 
feels the same way. So yeah, I kind of treat best ball as my season long exposure these days. Am I missing anything about the high level of what best ball is, Drew? No, that's basically it. And so because you can't make any adjustments to your roster during the course of the season, you need to build a roster that really can kind of withstand uh, the test of the season. And so you need to kind of, depending on the format that you're playing in, you want to allocate resources to areas that you, you feel like you might not have the depth to make it through the season. And so it's really interesting because depending on the different format that you're playing, whether you're playing kind of these cash games, whether it can be like double ups or 50-50s or even like head-to-head contests, um, or whether you're playing like these big tournaments, you have different approaches in terms of how you want to allocate your positions and, and build a roster uh, to attack them. So I think it's a really interesting game from a strategy standpoint. And I also think it's, you know, it's the perfect season-long game for DFS grinders because the last thing that I want to be doing during, on a Sunday morning when I'm trying to set, you know, 300 lineups across all these different sites is go log into my season long site and like try to figure out which wide receiver four I'm starting in my second flex spot. Like it's the, I want nothing to do with it. The number of times like in my home leagues with friends that I've had a player in that was like ruled out on like Sunday morning and my friends are just texting me as soon as one o'clock hits. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, it, it didn't even cross my mind. <laughs> so best ball is definitely the format for a true DFS grind. Right, for sure. Uh, I did want to mention that if you guys want to learn more about Best Ball, we have a ton of content. I did uh, Best Ball 101, which I think will give you a good overview of it. Also, Drew mentioned the optimal positional allocation. We have that for Yahoo, for Underdog, for FFPC. Uh, Leone ran a bunch of sims essentially to figure out what the optimal is. And a lot of that's going to depend on draft capital, which we'll talk about here a little bit more. All right. I want to say one thing about generally held Best Ball strategy that is just so tilting to me and maybe I'm wrong here and I, I I'm open to being wrong here but I want to get your take when people say oh yeah he's I wouldn't take him in season long but uh he, he's a great play in best ball or or, or he's <laughs> he's he's better in best ball basically they're referring to anyone who they don't feel great about and I hate this about the GPP people too no offense yeah. to your people in DFS yeah. people too they're like oh well this guy's not a good play but in GPPs yeah he's a great play okay uh, I hate when people say that. Um, like, yeah, I, I get it. Like Deshaun Jackson is going to have, uh, miss a bunch of games. Uh, he's going to have some air balls, uh, but his, his range of outcomes in a given, uh, game is going to be wider. Like I, I get that, but the whole idea that we can predict which NFL players will have more peaks and valleys than others. I'm just not sure I buy it. Like every NFL player has huge games and bad games, even the best players. That's just like the nature of small sample and the nature of these big event NFL things. So when I do my best ball, I actually don't move up guys like Deshaun Jackson or Marquise Brown or whoever you want to say in there who's yeah. like a, a a cliche best ball play. Is that a good take or not, Drew? I think it's certainly the case where the the case made for players being better options in best ball is overstated. I will say that. I think there is a, a little bit of a benefit to certain types of players in these formats, but I think it's it's really overstated in terms of the impact. And I think it really comes down to, honestly, for a lot of people, it comes down to a decision made based out of fear. You know, people go on Sunday, they look at setting their lineups and they see Meikle Hardman and they know they're going to get like three targets and they're trying to figure out if those three targets from Patrick Mahomes are going to result in you know, 16 to 20 fantasy points or one. And they're terrified of making that decision. And so ultimately, like Meikle Hardman has the same upside in, in seasonal setting rosters as he does in best ball it's just people don't want to have to make the decision on it and so I think that's ultimately where it comes from there are some players that are going to have slightly it's going to be slightly more useful because of that volatility in their performance profiles but over the course of the season it really doesn't make a huge difference and I wouldn't make I wouldn't make a big distinction in terms of 
um, how I'm moving guys around in rankings for best ball. Right, exactly. So I, I totally agree. And then so what, like Drew alluded to, I think our edge is not in moving these kind of guys around who are more volatile. It's in understanding roster construction, like how many players take at each position, yeah. uh, understanding how draft capital affects that, uh, understanding correlation and stacking. So yeah, I think we're on the same page there. Okay, let's get to the matter at hand. Uh, Underdog is the new best ball app. You guys can go back and listen to the interview I did with Jeremy uh, who is their CEO and love Jeremy. And I thought he was, he was really good on the podcast. I would encourage people to listen to that. But anyways, uh, I'm pretty confident that it won't be long until this underdog app is the biggest, best, biggest, best ball option, like most liquidity. You know, they have the the best tech, I would say, and they're launching with this $1 million guaranteed large field tournament on a $25 buy-in. And like that just, I mean, it's just amazing to me. Everybody wants this lottery style format. I mean, everybody, they want to try to turn, you know, not me, but but everybody wants to try to turn 25. I mean, I want to turn 25 into 200,000. Obviously I do, but like the, the, the unlikely enormity of actually doing it is just so overwhelming to me, but that's a story for another day. Anyways, this is what the masses want. So I think the action is going to be really good on that app. Um, if you do decide to play on, on underdog, Use code ETR. If you deposit, you'll be entered into a random drawing to win some underdog swag, some ETR prizes. On a high level, Dink, when you think about how to play this thing optimally, this best ball mania tournament, what comes to mind? And again, this is $25 buy-in, million dollar guarantee. You have to beat an insane number of teams just at a high level. What comes to mind when you look at this tournament? So the first thing that comes to mind is you want to take kind of a traditional GPP approach. And if you're a DFS player, the things that you would normally think of in GPPs is creating correlation trying to get leverage on the field. Uh, and those are really the two main things. The leverage on the field part is difficult in best ball because everybody is essentially owned. It's not like you're gonna say, oh, Travis Kelsey is only 30% owned in this contest. Uh, I can get him in, in playing because I think he should be 70% owned. He's, Travis Kelsey is 100% owned. Everybody's gonna have him. So the ways to create leverage in this tournament are a little bit different than from a DFS perspective. And then I think in general, you wanna figure out ways to create as much correlation as possible. The, the, the challenge with a tournament like this is essentially you're trying to win like four different tournaments. You're trying to win the whole season to get into the playoffs, and then you're trying to win each playoff week. And if you try to think through that in terms of like playoff scheduling and different things like that, there's too many, there's too many variables to really control. Um, at the end of the day, it's going to be a war of attrition in terms of how rosters stack up. You want to give yourself the best chance to be able to thrive in that situation. And I think that's that's the big difference between a big best ball tournament and playing like a best ball league. In a best ball league, you're trying to like insulate your roster to make sure that's protected throughout the season. In a big best ball tournament, you have to kind of go in with the understanding that most rosters are going to get decimated. So I'm going to try to build a roster that if it stays healthy, has huge advantages on everybody else. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why like handcuffing in, in best ball is not something we would recommend. Yeah. And, and all these things you need like, it to actually hit right. Like if tra- if you take Travis Gus in the first round and he gets hurt, you're probably dusted anyways. Like there's no reason to have three yeah. tight ends on your roster because you're probably dusted uh, anyways. One thing I noticed about this uh, underdog best ball uh, big GPP is that their payouts are actually somewhat flat, at least flatter than we're used to. 200K to first, 100K to second, 50K to third, 30K to fourth. Um, I think that makes a difference. At least maybe it should. I don't know. It's not like the FFPC thing that Evan and I did the 350 draft on where it's 500k to first, 30k to second. Do you adjust at all for these kind of flat payouts? Not really. Uh, at the end of the day, you're still trying to get, you know, a top 
0.005% performance uh, type situation from the roster uh, to really make meaningful impact and, and meaningful money in this. So I don't think it really adjusts things. I think it's nicer because I think, it, you know, over time, uh, just in general, the, the, the way payout structures impact your ROI and your performances, the more top heavy they are, the longer the timeline it is to, uh, to meet your expected return or expected value. So I think it's a nicer thing that we're dealing with, but it doesn't really adjust structure for me. It's still like, I'm still shooting for a ton of upside in the lineups, whether it's 500K to first or whether it's 200K to first. Um, okay. You mentioned the idea of this, you have to win four uncorrelated tournaments. I want to talk about that a little bit more. What Drew is referring to is weeks one through 13, you'll play against the 12 other people in your individual league. You have to win that. Week 14, you have to finish in like, I don't know exactly what it is, top X percent, very high percent to advance. Then in week 15, you have to finish in the top X percent again to advance. And then in week 16, you have to beat all these other amazing teams to get your finishing position. So these uncorrelated kind of things, I don't even know if we can prepare for it. We talked with Leone a little bit about this from a math perspective. It's it's actually hard to even prepare for this other than let's try to get into week 14 and hope for the best. Is that really a, a strategy? Or is there anything else we can do with this uncorrelated four tournament thing? Yeah, that's basically that's that's basically the way to do it. You can build correlation in your lineups. If you were building like a portfolio of lineups, I think it would encourage having a little bit more diversification. Like all the all the lineups should have kind of a common theme and approach in terms of roster allocation, positional allocations. But the the stacks that you're doing should be mixed up a little bit. But if you're playing like one one entry in this or three entries in this. Like, I really don't think you can plan too much for it. Last year, uh, one of the biggest differentiators in the playoffs for like a two-week period was Adrian Peterson. Mm-hmm. He did nothing to help people get to that point during the course of the season. And that's just, that's kind of fluky, right? That a player who does nothing to actually push you to the finals uh, is actually a player that's deciding things. And so it's very difficult to plan for. You can just kind of, you know, hope for the best and build the highest upside team and hope, you know, they strike at the right time. Yeah, I think any teams that aren't stacking on in this, at least one quarterback are drawing really slim. Would you agree there? Very, very much so. Um, Because those teams, you can build a good roster that gets you through the season. Let's say you just kind of take apart the whole draft with value, but you'd have nothing that's correlated. That's going to be a team that might hold up over the course of the season with a lot of consistent weeks that add up over time and add value above your opponents. But once you get to that playoff period, the, the idea that your uncorrelated roster is going to generate, you know, a top, 5% 5% finish or 1% finish that you need to advance to the next round to do that three or four times in a row, it seems extremely unlikely over the course of 13 weeks, you have the advantage of, of that value kind of adding up over time. But once you get to that final segment, you need that correlation to push you to the top. Right. I think it makes so sense. And, and as a quick aside, uh, when Silva tweeted our 350 team and people were like, <laughs> how could you have Matt Ryan, Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley on the same team? What are you guys thinking? The, I, I was just like, I couldn't even like I was so pissed at Silver for even tweeting it out because the mentions <laughs> were so bad. I couldn't even yeah. like breathe. I, I was I, I was melting down. Anyways, so we know we want to stack with one. You can take two quarterbacks in this format. In fact, our math showed that you should take at least two quarterbacks. And in some instances, you should take three. It depends on your draft capital. Obviously, if you take Patrick Mahomes, you're a little more likely to end up with a two quarterback roster. And then if you start with, say, uh, I don't know, Ben Roethlisberger, then you should probably have three quarterbacks on your roster is the general gist of it should we be trying to stack with every quarterback on our roster in this tournament setting yes if you can if you can you should you should certainly have the way that i view it is my primary quarterback i'd like to have at least stacked ideally double stacked um and then my secondary quarterback i'm hoping to get a single stack for and a lot of those secondary quarterbacks are kind of 
maneuvering the back half of the draft to kind of find an option. Sometimes the receivers you took earlier in the draft might dictate that second quarterback that you pick just to be able to get that correlation. But ultimately, the, the more shots you have at correlation, the more you can run into that random spike week at the right time. Um, so if you only have one quarterback that's stacked with one wide receiver, you're going into, let's say you make it into those playoffs, you're going in with one combination that could potentially hit for you. If you have two quarterbacks that are double stacked with their receivers, now you basically have one quarterback with uh, each of his wide receivers as combo. So that's two combos for each quarterback, four potential options of a stack that can go off. And if the quarterback really goes off and, and uh, highlights both wide receiver options, then you've got immediately like built-in floor above your uh, above all your competitors. So ideally, if you can walk away with two double stacks, um, that would that would be the perfect scenario. But I would want at least one of my quarterbacks double stacked is the way that I'd be trying to play these games. Right, exactly. And again, these are strategies to try to finish first. We're not trying to yep. get people to the playoffs. These are strategies to try to finish first, which I think should be people's goal if they're playing optimally here. Uh, one of the things that we found in the Millie Maker stacking article is that was that the field is not stacking quarterback with running back enough in the Millie Maker on DraftKings. And that's obviously DFS. This is different. I think you pointed out in your uh, how uh, usage is changing across the league from a high level, zoomed out level, that running backs are getting more and more involved in the pass game. And I think maybe we should spend a minute on why you think that is in the first place. Are just our coaches actually realizing that throwing the running back is more valuable? Are there more running backs with pass catching skill sets for whatever it is, whatever reason? It is. I think we can say that stacking quarterback with running back is at least in play. So why don't you talk a little bit about your article and what you found in there with running backs in general and then how you would consider stacking quarterback with running back in this format. Yeah, so I did an article kind of zooming out on the league and looking at league-wide trends. And over the last five years, we've seen target share running backs jump from, you know, universally about 17, 18, 19 percent to about 20 to 21 percent. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you shift two percentage points of targets to one uh, asset class and group as opposed to the other, it does have impacts. And what we've kind of seen on the season long side is there's been more uh, high end running backs, workhorse backs, there's fewer of them, and they've become extremely valuable. Obviously, Christian McCaffrey put up the outlier season last year that really highlighted this. But in general, those backs that kind of do it all are harder to find now. And, th- and there's more emphasis at the top of the drafts on them probably than ever before. Um, And that's carrying over in DFS as well. We saw it in the Millie Maker article that you wrote in terms of running back predictability and spending at running back compared to other positions wins out. And so I think what's happening in the league because of uh, more skilled pass catching running backs coming into the league and those being a higher percentage of the running backs that are on the roster, you're just seeing those guys get out in routes more. And I think also offenses are figuring out that it's better to get these guys out in routes than have them sit back and block for the quarterback and offer pass protection. You can protect your quarterback in lots of different ways uh, through play calling. And so I think more offensive coordinators are figuring out more innovative ways to do that. And so you're getting more routes run by running backs in general. Yeah. Uh, Obviously it's good to stack Teddy with McCaffrey or, you know, Tyrod with Austin Eckler. That's obvious. I think people want to know though, is can we stack Dak with Zeke? I mean, I think Zeke is a good pass catcher. He's not elite. Do we want running backs in our stack when maybe they're not the McCaffrey Eckler, Camara types. I think it's totally fine. And the reason is because twofold. One, uh, by the end of the season, uh, the scores that you get in the middle, in the early part of the season on these best ball rosters generally are going to be higher than the scores you get at the end of the season. The reason is very simple. 
by at the start of the season, everybody's playing with 18-man rosters, 20-man rosters, depending on the site that you're playing with. By the end of the season, injury attrition has kind of taken its toll. And now some teams are down to 16. Some teams are down to 14 players. And so they have fewer big scores to choose from on a given week and find those scores. So if you can condense your, your, your search for big scores to an offense, and especially one that we expect to be prolific like Dallas, that team can still put up a good quarterback running back combination without the quarterback and running back connecting on touchdowns because they can be the team that scores 35, 45 points on a given week. The quarterback throws for three, the running back runs for two, and you're still there. Even though they didn't correlate individually on a single play, the success of the offense is offering correlation. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Oh, last question I have on stacking. Um, I mentioned the 350 draft that Evan and I did. We had Matt Ryan, we had Julio, we had Calvin and the late rounds, I was like, man, maybe we should take Russell Gage too. Where do you come in on like these dusty wide receiver threes and fours as part of your stack? Is it even worth including them? Yeah, I want it. Um, I know in um, like the Scott Fishbowl League, I went Ryan, Julio Jones. I wasn't able to get Ridley. And so I added Russell Gage and Ito Smith late just in case, you know, Todd Gurley gets hurt. Ito Smith ends up in a pass catching role. I find my way into the right kind of format. So I want it. Those, those kind of periphery decision points at the end of drafts where choosing between a few like dusty guys and you're like, uh, you know, I lean towards the tiebreaker of if I have correlation built in, you know, maybe my quarterback's strong play can lead this player to being useful. Okay. Let's talk about uh, a little bit more roster construction here for this specific tournament. Can you actually go into this best ball mania draft with the idea of being contrarian? I mean, you know, we know people are going to be trying to stack Mahomes and, and Tyreek and Mahomes and Kelsey, and there's going to be other obvious stacks can you go into a draft being like hey i'm gonna try to be super contrarian in this in this draft i think the thing that you should understand is that in terms of being contrarian you know we we're very focused on kind of this this niche world where everybody understands or everybody talks about stacking and different concepts but not everybody playing these games is going to implement these strategies and so naturally you're already going to kind of have an edge just on figuring out the right positional allocation that you're going in and going in with a plan of attack. So in terms of player selection, I don't think there's a ton of value to being to being contrarian. Some people will say, oh, you'll get more unique combinations of players. And the way that I think about it is like, okay, if you reach in round one uh, for, I don't know, like some third round option, and then you do the same in round two with somebody who's in the fourth or fifth round, somebody else is going to build the same team along the lines when they get those guys in the third or fourth rounds, and they're just going to have first and second round picks on top of them. And so like, you're naturally kind of just building a worse version of someone else's roster. So I don't think you can necessarily be contrarian in terms of player selection. I do think at the end of drafts, you can be contrarian in terms of roster selection because those players aren't going to be 100% owned in all tournaments. And right. the example that I used last year is I spent a lot of draft capital last year on guys like Malcolm Brown, Darwin Thompson, these backup running backs that I thought could emerge in, in successful offenses. And I probably had like 20 to 30% of my exposure in these big tournaments to running back profiles like that. And then on teams that I needed wide receivers at the end, there was this wide receiver flyer that I really liked in DJ Shark that I ended up taking on a few teams. But I didn't take him on enough teams because he wasn't the guy that was getting drafted. And so he wasn't showing up in the ADP side and I'd used all my wide receiver slots. He ended up being a huge difference maker that wasn't universally owned in this mm -hmm. tournament. And so I think if you're going to be contrarian in these tournaments, think about it towards the end, the last few roster picks, because you're differentiating yourself with now maybe 20% of the field that has this player or 15% or 30% instead of in the early rounds where 
100% of your competitors have these players. And it's just different combinations you're batting around. Right. I would say, Drew, I'm embarrassed for you that you were using the ADP on the site to draft. You, you gotta, <laughs> uh, we have uh, made it so you can upload our uh, specific underdog rankings onto underdog if people want to do it uh, the right way. And of course, you can still be aware of ADP as you're doing that. Um, I what it, But you, you mentioned late round flyers. What about just contrarian stacks, right? Like there's going to be fewer yep. combos of like Teddy Bridgewater stacks and there will be of Mahomes stacks, right? Absolutely. Because Mahomes is going to be 100% owned. I mean, Bridgewater is probably a guy that'll probably be like 94% owned. Like there's going to be a few leagues that he doesn't go in, but not a lot. Um, but I do think those end round quarterbacks, the late round quarterbacks, a lot of people aren't building in the early rounds with the ideas of stacking them. So then they get to the late rounds and they're just like, oh, this is the best guy available and I need a quarterback. So I'll just take him. Right. So those guys end up getting paired way less frequently than the top guys, because a lot of teams, a lot of people like to build stacks forward. They like to say, okay, I have this quarterback. Now let me go get some people with them. They're not building them backwards. So I do think some of those late round guys, you know, Teddy Bridgewater, Dwayne Haskins, like these guys that aren't going to be universally owned and aren't going to be stacked as frequently are interesting ones to utilize in these tournaments. Um, okay. What about this whole idea of hyper fragility? Like we actually found that three running back constructions while very few people did them, like showed a little bit of a positive expectation. Obviously, yeah. you just need to hit like nut, nut, nut at running back and have three running backs stay healthy for the whole season, which is, you know, asking a lot. But what about trying to be contrarian through some of these hyper fragile constructions? So the other thing that I'll note about like a lot of the research around examining win rates and leagues and different things, they they mix in a lot of the, the actual like normal league data and as opposed to this tournament specifically. Yeah. And so I, I do think that the positional allocations in terms of how you're approaching them should be different if you're playing like a normal league versus if you're playing this tournament. Because in this tournament, you really have to have everything go right. So you should be building a roster with the idea that what if everything goes right? How do I capitalize on that most? And so in that, in that instance, I think the, the robust running back or the hyper-fragile running back strategies are very compelling. Um, and I think they're extremely compelling, especially for this year in particular, in this contest, because there's a, there's an out on this contest where underdog has basically said like the first four weeks of the season, if we get those four weeks and then for some reason the season doesn't continue on, we're going to count these as, as contests that are completed essentially. And with a lot of the running backs that you select later in the draft to build up that running back depth, there's now situations where if this season gets shortened in any way, shape or form, their value is going to come from later in the season when there's attrition that's kind of built up. If that doesn't happen, and I think it's a small percentage chance of these things happening, but it is increasing your edge a little bit. I think those hyper-fragile running back builds have a huge edge because they're going to be scoring the points early in the season. You get a deeper wide receiver pool to be able to choose from scores. You might not have those high-end wide receivers on your team, but you try to win it with volume. I think it's a really strong strategy for this, this tournament, this tournament and specifically this year. Yeah, super interesting for sure. Be sure to read all of the rules on whatever uh, site you're playing on for how they're going to handle if the season ends up getting shortened or something like that. Uh, we had a question from Mike Leone, friend of the show. He says, how does Dink get wild in drafts? People don't know you as a wild man, Dink. How do you get wild in these best ball drafts? Yeah, so the big thing is understanding kind of how how your early selections impact your later selections. And so for me, I think the the weirdest roster construction that I came up with last year for one of these tournaments was I, a single quarterback. I think you should almost always be drafting two quarterbacks and sometimes three. But I drafted Mahomes relatively early, and I had him stacked with Tyreek and Kelsey, and I think I got Sammy and 
uh, Darwin Thompson later as well. So I had this massive Kansas City onslaught. And my base, my, my, my reasoning for the idea was if I can withstand one Patrick Mahomes bye week during the year and forfeit those like 18 points, I will be better positioned for the playoffs by having this both roster that has all of his different options to be able to attack that if he goes nuts, I'm going to be able to get to the top. Mahomes got hurt last year. Strategy was totally, totally dead pretty early. Um, but that's probably the, the weirdest I've gotten. I think in general, the things you have to think through is just how does each pick that you make, how does that player influence your decisions on future picks? And you've referred to it in this show with, in terms of draft capital, if you invest a lot in an early tight end, like a Travis Kelsey or a George Kittle, you should not be having three tight end builds. You should be having two tight end builds. If you invest in an early quarterback, you should not be having three quarterback builds. Um, in the strategy that I outlined for this specific tournament with the idea of robust running back, if you take three or four running backs in your first four picks, the idea is then to stop taking running backs and just load up at other positions and be able to hope that those three or four running backs stay healthy at a competitive advantage over, over the field because so many other rosters are going to have dead spots during the course mm -hmm. of the year with backup running backs that are just useless until an injury happens. And if you can kind of win by just avoiding those dead spots and trying to allocate them to positions that have more opportunity to slide into your scoring, like the wide receiver, I think that's the highest upside path to competing in these tournaments. Yeah, Drew has an article up on the site. I believe the title is how the best optimal way, optimal strategy for winning the uh, specific $25, 200K to first tournament. Go ahead and check that out. Before we get out of here, Drew, I want to talk about some specific stacks that came to mind for me at least, and see what you think about them. I already mentioned the Teddy stack. I think one of the keys to the Teddy stack is if you start, if you happen to get 1.1 and you're able to get Christian McCaffrey, and then it's pretty easy though. I think the rest yeah. of his guys are pretty underpriced. You can get Teddy yeah. so late. You can get Ian Thomas so late. You can get Curtis Samuel so late. I think DJ Moore is priced pretty appropriately, but you can probably find your way onto him too. So you can, I think you can really get a lot of Panthers stacks here. That was one that kind of stuck out to me as if you get CMC, it's a path to take. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I in the in the draft version of this tournament last year, I had a ton of Cam, CMC, DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel stacks. That was kind of my approach going in. Obviously, Cam got hurt; it didn't it didn't work out. The other guys ended up you know performing fine. But I think that 1.01 spot really opens that up, and I think it's a, a really smart approach to take. Um, you also at that four or five turn uh, often you'll have a shot at DJ Moore, mm -hmm. so you don't have to force it. You know, you don't have to force it at the two three turn. You can wait and see if you get them at the four or five. And then move on. I think that's a really interesting one. Um, I also think, you know, I, I, I think Atlanta's a, a cost affordable stack in general um, because I think there's decent prices on Ridley and Julio Jones. Hayden Hurst is tough to get at the price tags that he's going at, so I'd avoid that piece. Um, but Pittsburgh is also a team that I, I think you can yeah. stack pretty affordably right now with reasonable prices on Juju, James Conner, Eric Ebron, Deontay Johnson, and, and Big Ben. So those are some stacks that I'm pretty interested in. Obviously, like, the, the strategy that I'm trying to implement with going running back heavy early is going to naturally forfeit some approaches to some types of stacks. I'm not going to have a lot of Kansas city stacks. If I'm building a portfolio and trying to utilize that strategy, because if you're going running backs early, you're not getting Tyreek, you're not getting Kelsey, right. you're not getting Mahomes. Um, so it depends on the strategy you're utilizing for zero running back type strategies. I think the Kansas city builds are interesting. I just don't think this is, I don't think this tournament is as great of a, place to use zero running back than some other formats yeah and leone actually has an article about how viable uh zero running back is in best ball and he had a lot of data in there that was interesting um 
I actually like the idea of running backs early in this format because I think there's a lot of stacks you can build late. I think Stafford, Marvin, Hawkinson, yeah. DeAndre Swift is interesting. What about Deshaun Watson, Fuller, Cooks, Duke Johnson, uh, yeah. Baker, Odell, Landry, maybe you can pull off, maybe Kareem Hunt. And then yeah. one with news today of, of Debo Samuel. I mean, I didn't, I was always skeptical on Debo Samuel's health. Now the 49ers are admitting it. You can get Jimmy G, Ayuk. Uh, Jalen Hurd really late. And if, you're, if you're able to start with Kittle, I mean, you know, I, I think really yeah. good schedules. Evan has pointed out a bunch. So I think there's plenty of late round quarterback options that have stacks uh, that have stack partners who are underpriced also. And that's kind of what I'm typically looking for. So, yeah, just giving you some ideas. Once you win the 200K, I'll take a, a small tip. <laughs> yeah, I think those are great ideas. And I think um, one of the other stacks that I like this year a lot, I know we're down on DeAndre Hopkins, but if you can get Kyler at a reasonable price tag, Christian Kirk is really affordable and Andy Isabella is free. And if Andy Isabella, you know, is able to break off some big plays like he did last year, get on the field a little bit more, uh, there's certainly pass there. And obviously like Chase Edmonds uh, as a zero running back target would, would be an option there too, is if you were building a little bit more running back depth. But I think the teams that are going to be a little bit harder to stack just because of the way this shapes up because of the price tags for me are going to be like Baltimore and Kansas city. Like it's just harder when you're spending an early round pick on Lamar or Patrick Mahomes to build those types of stacks that you feel comfortable with. Cause usually those guys pull their pass catchers ADP along with them. You're not going to get kind of those cheap options. So a lot of times in these, I think these cheap stacks are really, really a strong way to go. Yep. Okay. We've said it all on underdog and on best ball. You can find our underdog rankings. You can find, we have like six, seven, eight articles up about best ball and underdog on the site right now. Be sure, go ahead and check that out. We will be back. Well, Drew actually won't be back. Drew is diving into the NBA <laughs> streets. He he will be back from time to time on NFL. But again, really encourage you guys to reward Dink for his hibernation by checking out his work on the NBA. So for producer Luke, for Drew, I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm-hmm.